Love Talk Radio. GPG or even an R-rated show, so if bad talk, dirty language, bodily functions might upset you, this may not be the show for you. Desperate House Witches is brought to you by the incredibly wicked one, the amazing Dorothy Morrison. Please check out www.wickedwitchstudios.com. Also, please check on the social media page for Wicked Witch Studios. Uh, There is a social media wonderful sale going on of Dorothy's limited edition candles and the link is in that Facebook page. So check out wickedwitchstudios.com. All right, for the hour or whatever's left of it, all the way from his trip, actually coming off of his trip overseas, the wonderful, amazing, I love this guy, Jason Mankey. Hey, Jason, how are you? Hi, Raina. I'm good. I can't live up to that introduction, so thank you so much for your kind words. <laughs> I, I will try. I'll try to be amusing for the next hour. Well, <laughs> Jason, you know, you're, you are amusing. You are a very good person. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, you know, I feel badly because every time I talk to you about your current book, you're already another book ahead. And, <laughs> I mean, I know uh, that you have a book coming out in December um, about uh, witchcraft, using, or witchcraft with the Greek gods, uh, uh, something you've been co-writing with Australia Taylor, who I also love very, very much. Um, but today we're going to talk about The Witch's Book of Spellcraft, A Practical Guide to Connecting with the Magic of Candles, Crystals, Plants, and Herbs, and... Wow. Jason, I've got to ask you about this, because you didn't write this just by yourself. Um, You wrote this with two coven mates, is my understanding, and your lovely wife, Ari. Um, So I've got to know, how is that, being one of the greatest collaborator on books about witchcraft? You know... Collaborations are always different. So the first time I collaborated with someone, I wrote The Witch's Altar with Laura Tempest-Sackroth. And Laura yeah. has written other books, and I had written other books. And we mostly just went through, and it's like, you'll write about this, and I'll write about that, you know. And we didn't necessarily, like, really bounce ideas off of each other. We just wrote our sections. And that's what writing yeah. the Greek God's book with Astray has been like. But this was a whole other sort of journey. So I wrote it with... Uh, three people from uh, one uh, from our covens, and then obviously Ari, my wife, is one of those three people. And I wrote most yeah. of the book, but I feel like everyone's ideas are in the book. So we would meet. I would ask them questions. They would tell me things. I would take copious notes, and then I would try to get all of those different perspectives into the book. So it's a really different way of writing. 
you know, while I was writing the book, I would, like, look at my notes, and then I would, like, check things off, like, yep, there's that idea, there's that idea, check, 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 you know, and I had to write this book with other people because I'm really good at writing about history, and I, I think I write good rituals, but I'm terrible at writing spells, and Matt, Amanda, and Ari are just, like, wonderful witches when it comes to spellcraft, and I knew that I needed their voices in the book. And so that's what it ended up being. It was it was really fun. Sometimes I'd take one of them out for wine or something, and then I'd be like, okay, now we're going to talk about herbs for an hour. Come on, Matt, tell me everything about all these various herbs. And I did the same with stones and Ari and oils with Amanda. Yeah, it was really fun. It was really different. We wrote it during COVID in 2020, so that was kind of the hype before vaccines, before we really could do anything. And we wanted to spend a lot of time together doing spells and working on various things. But because of COVID, it became a lot more challenging, I think, than what we had originally anticipated. So it ended up being a lot more Zoom calls and that sort of thing, which is kind of sad, but I'm still really happy with how the book turned out. Wow, yeah. Oh, and it's not just the four of you. I mean, you uh, took contributing pieces from a lot of fantastic folks. Thorn is in there. Thorn Looney, uh, Madam Pamita is in there. I mean, you've got a bunch of other folks in there who also gave snippets and, and, and part part of, uh, I'm sorry, they contribute, contributed to the book. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble talking today. I don't know what the problem is, but I'll figure that out. So when you're writing, you know, is, is there a process by which someone is asking you to write a certain kind of book? Or is this something you had wanted to do previously as far as this particular book? Because you do write a lot of what I consider specialty books. You write a lot about specific uh, parts of history in specific uh, ways and specific, you know, this god or this type of god or this goddess or this type of god. You know what I mean? You you have very specific uh, points of view that you go to for a lot of the history that you do cover, and you cover tons of history. Um, but this is, to me, like a really big, beautiful spell book, but not just a spell book. It's, it's very much a path book, um, the likes of which I haven't really seen, like this one in particular. It's really detailed. It's really lovely. Um, it's really a lot of information, and it's quite beautiful, and <laughs> obviously it's a lot of work. Was this something you had planned on doing anyway? I think if you like witchcraft books, Eventually, you're legally obligated to write a spell book of some sort. And, really? you know, that's not, <laughs> that's tongue-in-cheek. There's nothing, like, Lou Allen doesn't tell me what to write. But it just seemed like a natural progression, right? So I, I thought maybe that would be something that I would like to write. And I was thinking in the shower uh, one Jason, day about... Jason, you're warping yeah. a little bit, so I need you to find a bit of a better spot, if you could. Yeah, like... It's really sad where we live. Like, our phone, uh, like, our reception is terrible. Like, we get no bars oh, that's in better. California. It's, yeah. You're better so, right now, so, actually. Good. So, 
I, you know, I said I said tongue in cheek that I was legally obligated to write a book, which isn't true. But I kind of thought maybe right. something that I would like to write one day. And what I wanted to write about was the different way that witches use magic, because using herbs is not the same as using stones as using candles. And that's not ever really pointed out. Instead, what you end up getting are, you know, here's a list of spells, but no one explains how these different types of magic work. So I thought it would be an interesting exercise to talk about how these different disciplines work. I don't know if I actually accomplished what my goal was, but that was the original plan. And so I was in the shower, I was thinking to myself, and I thought about, you know, candles, herbs, stones, not creative visualization, all these different ways that people do magic. And then I ran to my computer and I like wrote down like chapter outlines. And so I had these ideas of how to spell things out. And then after the end of like the how to work the magic section, I wanted to have a list of spells. So I texted Matt, like, would you help me with that? Would you be a part of this process? And he's like, yes. However, I don't think it should just be you and me. We have to bring in Ari and we have to bring in Amanda. So that's kind of how it came about. But I always want to write books that answer questions that I've had. Like 20 years ago, if I had a question and I couldn't find it answered in a book, now I want to write the book that gives that answer. Which is wonderful. And, you know, the, the scope and breadth of this book is really great, not just for, for people like us who, you know, when I came into magic, we were assumed to have certain levels of knowledge that we just didn't have. I mean, I should, I'm a bit older, so I should actually just say me. Um, you know, it was just kind of understood that you knew which herb to use for what and which stone went for what and candles in the whole nine yards. And a lot was assumed with information we actually didn't have in my day. You know, unless you had the right uh, person near you or you found, luckily, the right set of books, um, a lot of the assumed information we never really went back and got, which is why a book like this is so helpful because for someone new coming into it, it, you know, puts a lot of the information directly in their hands. And, but for somebody like me who's older, who didn't go back and get all the assumed knowledge, this gives me a lot of it. So I like this book for everybody for that reason. And I also like having something written, again, by another Gardnerian because there's not a whole lot of us that are out so publicly and certainly not writing these classic kind of books like we used to get. So I'm really happy that you're out there, you know, for me, representing us. That's how I look at you. Do you know what I mean? You're very kind. I think you're nicer to me than maybe I deserve. But I will say that, you know, one of the problems with, like, especially kind of spell books is they're like cookbooks. There's like, this is how to, this is like how to do this. I'm going to kind of spell it out. But there, no one gives you the whys, right? No one explains why you're doing this and how to vary things if you're missing a certain ingredient or whatever. You know, cookbooks don't teach you how to cook. They show you how somebody else cooks. I want to teach people how to do spells, right? I want to teach people how to do spell work. 
And while there are spells in my book, I do think that the book is set up so that when you're done reading it, that you really know how to do your own work. Because I think spells are better when we create them ourselves. Like, you can read, you know, those, like, 1,000 spells books and do some of those, and they're probably just fine. But I do think the magic's more powerful when we write our own things. So that's why we wrote the book, so people could learn how to do it on, them, on their own, and we're really adamant throughout the book, you know. Feel free to change things up. Feel free to adapt these spells. You know, what we've written is a beginning. It's not an ending. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, all magic, the intention behind it is what makes it propel, what makes it work. And, you know, I was having this conversation quite recently, as a matter of fact, that You've got to have a framework, though. And a lot of the time, young folks, when I was a young folk, I didn't have a framework. I had, you know, books by Sybil Lee and Patricia Cawthorn, and I had, you know, Buckland and all the, the older, older stuff, you know. And there was a lot of presumption of what we actually knew for quite a long time. Uh, but this book really is great at saying, if this is what you're wanting to do, there are various ways to go about it. And it's not just one voice. I'm, you know, when you read the book, you see that there are multiple voices. And sometimes one voice resonates more than another, depending on who you are and what you're going for. But magic, without having the intention of the person doing the actual casting, if you're just going to recite someone else's words, it's not going to be as effective as when you put in your own belief and your own words, and it has to feel right, you know. Just spouting off somebody else's words may be okay as far as the framework of it, but without the person behind it, you've really got something that can fall quite flat. So it's, it's a great set of frameworks that you have in the book. You explain a lot of why certain things are for certain spells and why this herb works here, and I mean, it's very, very informative, and I'm very appreciative of books that give a lot of that information. Well, this is what you do with this, and this is why you do it. And I still find that there's a lack of that kind of book out there, so that's why I'm really excited. I mean, I have to be honest with you, I have a lot of your books. This one's my personal favorite for that reason. I'm sure you're going to hear that a lot. I will say this book has gotten the best reviews of my writing career. I mean, we're eight books in, and people seem to like this one better. You know, usually by now I'm used to, like, a one-star review or something. So everything's mostly been positive is not something that I'm used to. Uh, but the different voices, you bring that up, is really, really important to me. One of my favorite sayings is there are no absolutes in witchcraft. There's no one way you have to do anything. What the way that you have to do things is the way that it works for you, right? And in that sense, how things work for me may be different than how things work for Ari. While we were writing the book, we were talking about, you know, different stones and things, and we were talking about pyrite. And Matt and Amanda were like, well, you use pyrite for money spells, right? Because it's fool's gold. And I was like, I would use pyrite to trick people because it's fool's uh -huh. gold, right? That's what it does. It tricks people, yeah. and both interpretations, I think, are valid, right? I, you know, as long 
yeah. as it makes sense to you, that's how you should use it. Though I, I'm really proud, though, that I did kind of get Matt and Amanda to come to my side after the book came out because <laughs> they'd listen to me doing these <laughs> podcasts. And I'd be like, you know, well, you know, it's cool, people. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's really, really pretty sharp, Jason. It's about the only time they said yeah. that. Yeah, really, you're pretty sharp, oh. Jason. Sure, that's not true. But, you know, when I have, and I have a couple of large chunks of pyrite, and for me, pyrite is more like glitter, and I use it in that regard. I don't really use it to attract money because, again, like you said, it's fool's gold. It's not real gold. It's putting up an illusion. So I just use it as a shiny to amplify power. That's all I use it for, and I think it works for me that way. See, so that the ability to use different things by different people and see the validity in all of the uses is extremely helpful because there's, you know, back in the day we had a book called The Magical Formulary by Herman Slater. I'm assuming you're familiar, but you may not be. But it was my first oh, horrible book Herman. that I ever I, oh, yeah. I, I know Uncle the legacy Slimy. of Herman very well. Yeah. Yes. We used to call him Uncle Slimy. Absolutely. Well, being from New York, I spent quite a large amount of time at Enchantments and Magical Child and all of the other places that were available back then in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, <clears throat> that was my first cookbook, quote, unquote. And it didn't say why you did anything. It just said, Here's your spell. Here's everything you need. Go get it. Oh, I may have it at my shop so you can buy it. And then you can go do your spell. I mean, they were elaborate. 9,000 ingredients and this and that and do this at midnight. And holy shit. You want to talk about, like, warding somebody away from magic. You know, I mean, some of them were great, but it was very complex. And the idea that, you know, when you get older, you know more and you do better and you know how to substitute ingredients. You know, if you don't have buttermilk, you take regular milk and some lemon and you stick them together and it equals the same damn thing. So this book is great because it's not overly complicated and it doesn't give you too many ingredients to use at once. And I think that just helps when you, when you feel more empowered, like, okay, this is all I need and this is all I have to do, and this is how I feel about it, I'm going to go make this happen, I think it's much more powerful than having a shopping list that you have to wait three weeks for your ingredients to show up before you even get started. It's really important to me, and it was important to Amanda and Matt and Ari, magic should not be hard to do. We shouldn't have to invest like $50 in things in order to do a money spell to pay your rent. Right, magic should be yeah. accessible, and I think especially in the '70s and '80s, a lot of those early books made it really inaccessible in a lot of ways. I remember yeah. reading Buckland's Practical Candle Burning Rituals in the early '90s. You know, it was a classic. Yep. Everyone had Bucky's Big Blue Book, so I was like, well, you know, this is probably yeah. really good. And all of those practical candle burning spells called for like 15 candles. I mean, that's yeah. not practical. A, a, you know, a candle burning spell should take one or two candles, not 12, you know. So we exactly. really wanted to make sure that we were presenting magic in this really accessible way that's not going to break anybody's budget, that doesn't make you think that you have to, you know, pick lilies on the morning of Beltane 
you know, only after the full moon with the fresh dew still on the flowers, you know, like a lot of books are like that. And maybe I think there's probably extra energy for doing that. Don't get me wrong. If you can pick flowers on Beltane morning with fresh dew on them, I think that's pretty great. But most of us really are not going to have that opportunity. So it's better to write about these things in a way that people can actually accept them. It's so important, especially now. You know, we're we're still. I don't know how you feel about it because I don't know what it's like where you where you are in California. But like here on the East Coast, we don't know if we're still in a pandemic anymore. And like half the information says, nah, and half the information says it's about to get worse all over again. So I really can't keep up with it because it keeps changing. But you know, a lot of folks took a real beating financially. And I think it's really important for folks to have access, like you said, and it not cost a lot of money, especially now since folks, a lot of folks just don't have a lot of money. Absolutely that's true. I mean, we're, we just had a once in, you know, hopefully once in a century pandemic. Also the war in the Ukraine with, you know, Russian, like, evilness has really pushed a lot of things forward, like when it comes to prices. So, yeah, like doing things is harder than it's been in quite a while. So it's important to keep things simple. It's important to let people know that you can swap out things. You know, like using rose oil is really, really, really expensive, right? But maybe you can not use rose oil. Instead, use something like basil, which is half the price, right? And your magic will still be just as strong and as good. Oh, yeah, and it, especially now because, you know, we're suffering from so many supply chain management issues. Things are sitting on boats at docks, not being moved. Things are sitting, uh, waiting from other countries to come in. I mean, the ability to have options and things that are swappable is super important. And, you know, I think that, if you can get everything out of your kitchen, including the candles, and hopefully you've over the years accumulated some, some crystals and stones, even small ones, they do not have to be boulders. They do not have to be way, way, way expensive. Um, I think it just helps so much to give people that feeling of empowerment, especially since we have, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have felt really out of control over the last number of years um, from Trump on, you know. I don't know if you're experiencing that, too. Oh, absolutely. I think all of us are. I mean, it's been sort of an unprecedented last five or six years, right? I mean, you had Trump, which was like nothing else in the history of the system, and then on top of that, COVID, and then now, like, the imminent repeal of Roe v. Wade. These are, these are like terrible times in so many ways. There, you know, there were the Black Lives Matter protests, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been really rough. Magic, though, helps empower us, though, and I think that's one of the reasons for like the current boom of witchcraft is that empowerment, right? I mean, in the face of all of these things, here's a tool that you can use to improve your lives and to improve your circumstances. And uh, I think the current witchcraft bubble is really the result of a lot of these things. I mean, I've not ever dealt with this much uncertainty 
in my 50 years or so of life. Wow, yeah. I mean, I have to agree. You know, it's interesting for me because when I was born, and again, I'm older than you, uh, when I was born, Roe v. Wade, there was no such thing. Abortion was not legal. uh, And, you know, we all know the horrors of what happens when you don't give people access to something they need. Well, in this one lifetime that I've had, I'm about to leave this world with women having fewer rights than, you know, most of my life because there are things I had to take advantage of during my life that women may not ever have access to again in our country, and that's really frightening. But, you know, you, you mentioned that this was a, a, you know, the current bubble of, of folks turning to the crap, as it were, and I think every time we go through a period where things are on a really downward spiral, people are looking for something that works, that gives them self-empowerment. Because I think a lot of the quote-unquote Judeo-Christian things don't necessarily answer that. You know, a lot of it is about blind faith. And I think, you know, what we do is unique in the sense of we recognize the fact that there's deity. We recognize the fact that there's personal power. We recognize the fact that we have a certain responsibility to make things happen and to put um, put it out there in such a way that, you know, magic can assist in accomplishing our goals. Um, so, yeah, it just seems like every time there's something really shitty going on in the world, uh, a lot more folks start turning to... Um, alternate, quote-unquote, religion, you know. So it's kind of nice to see that people are, you know, I've, I've noticed that over the years a lot of people are leaving the Catholic Church. Well, a lot of those people are coming our way, you know. Maybe it's because they like ritual. I don't know. What do you think? I think that there's an attraction to ritual for a lot of people. Uh, you brought up, you know, when the witchcraft sort of booms hit. And if you look at the history of things, like, in the early 1950s, when we had the first modern public witches in Great Britain, that came at the end of World War II, right? And there are still, like, lots of shortages of supplies and things. It's a really uncertain time for a lot of people, and they find hope and faith in witchcraft. The second boom is the late 60s through the early 70s. There were a lot of things going on then. I mean, we had the – we kind of had what we call today the hippie movement, but you also had the civil rights movement, but you also – you had catastrophic things like – the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., RFK, runaway inflation in the early 70s, you know, witchcraft feeds into that, right? Because we want to take control of our circumstances. And witchcraft gives us the means to do so. Um, So I'm not surprised that things are, like, how they are right now within our community with, like, so many people coming to it so many people finding the craft for the first time. It's really exciting, too, as somebody who's been doing this a while. I I know you keep telling me how much older you are than me, but it's not that much older, you know. But I I appreciate you making me feel like I'm... Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You you wear it well. You wear it really well. Well, thank you. You're sweet. Now you're being kind. That would be you. Um, but thank you. I mean, I'm, I'll be 61 in a few months, so I thank you again. That's a very sweet thing for you to say, and I will 
specifically hug you when I see you, which is going to be very soon. I'm so excited. Um, but 60, I want, 61 is the new 31, right? 61 is the new 31. <laughs> oh, that was true. Let me just say, wishes for fishes. Anyway, but, you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the concept of having a post-pandemic conference and what you think about as far as, you know, how people are going to interact in a large setting. I mean, I know you have done it, you've done it more recently than I have. This Mystic South is going to be, for example, my first big um, pagan gathering since the pandemic started. So I was just wondering how different it is out there. Are, are folks having an okay, okay time social distancing, or is that not happening uh, from what you're seeing? It's a mixed bag. I think that festivals have the really best of intentions, and I really appreciate festivals that make you either bring in a negative COVID test or you have to show proof of vaccination, right? Um, COVID's not going away anytime soon. We're going to have to live with this for the rest of our lives. Luckily, it's not as damaging as it was two years ago, right? The virus has become less fatal. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to downplay the virus in any way, but like the new variants are much less severe than the originals. So, I went to Paganicon in Minneapolis at the end of March, and you had to have a negative COVID test to get in, which I thought was a pretty good yeah. thing and I felt really comfortable. They still required masks in public settings. However, oftentimes those masks disappeared very very quickly. And there's really no way to enforce that. I think if anybody goes to a festival expecting everyone to be masked 24-7, they're going to be really disappointed. Because I think it's in our human nature not to wear the mask to a degree. And it, it feels really weird saying these kind of things because it makes me feel like a, like a tea party or a trumper or something. I wear masks when I go to Target. I mean, I wear masks when I go to the grocery store. I wear masks when I'm on public transportation. I wear masks often when I'm inside, but when you're with your friends that you haven't seen in two years, it's, you know, and especially if you're like at a concert or something, right, and you're sipping on whatever adult beverage you might be sipping on, it's really hard to keep that mask off, that mask off, and you just sort of watch them disappear as the festival goes on. Um, I think that there is risk inherent in life, and how comfortable you are with that risk should play a role in whether or not you want to go to a festival. God, I, I sound like a COVID denier, and I don't want to sound like that at all, but I'm also really a realist about no, no, no. how people will act. Absolutely. I, I don't think you sound like any kind of a denier of fact at all. Um, but, you know, it is difficult, and requirements to do so should be in place with the best of intentions all the time. I do understand what you're saying, though. Anyone who I haven't seen who comes into my home, we are up in each other's faces like almost 90% of the time because we haven't hugged our loved ones in such a long time. And, you know, the idea that I'm going to see a whole bunch of, of folks that I'm, I'm dying to interact with and maybe not necessarily a public arena like some private conversations, 
I'm giving a lot of consideration to kind of making my personal room a space where folks can like comfortably hug if they have proof of vaccination. You know what I mean? Because I want to be safe. I want everyone to feel like their protection is important. But, you know, God, the, I don't listen, I love my husband, I love my kids, I love my friends here, but the idea that I'm going to be able to hug people, like you, for example, who I haven't seen in three years, um, yeah, I'm going to kind of want to hug, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to make it a safe zone in my own room so folks can feel like they can get hugs without, you know, any kind of fear, if at all possible. I mean, everything's a risk, like you said. But it would be nice. You know, I mean, I'm really happy with all the festivals, though. I mean, they are putting safeguards in place. They are asking for proof of vaccination or proof of a negative test. And I remember when I went to Paganicon, people were turned away for lack of, like, proof of a negative test. I mean, they, it was very serious, you know, and there were some people who didn't go to the festival because they didn't think that they should have to test or whatever. Uh, so I, those kind of safeguards, I think, are great and are important. And I'm glad that we're not just having festivals where, hey, I'm walking in off the street. I want to hang out with people, you know. Uh, so I feel really good about it, especially the indoor ones. I think you need that extra layer of security uh, to some degree. But you also, again, I think you have to be realistic about how people will do things, right? And, you know, maybe on Saturday night, they're not going to want to wear a mask or something. And, you know, if it's within the current CDC guidelines, it, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to, you know, tell them otherwise. Again, it's just such a, it's such a difficult thing because you want everybody to be safe. And we also have immunocompromised people who, for whatever reason, can't get a vaccine or are at higher risk and want to make sure those people are taken care of. But then again, you're also acknowledging human nature and how people are going to let things slip. You know, it, it's a, it's a strange new world out there. That's for sure. It is. And, you know, but I think if we all do the best as we can, I mean, there are certain situations, obviously, before I got vaccinated, I certainly would not risk being around anyone with children. I would not risk um, anybody that, and I'm immunocompromised myself, but I also made sure that I did not expose um, myself to those folks or let them be exposed to me. Uh, So I reduced the risk. And there were some things I simply didn't do because it wasn't safe. You know, everything cannot be for everybody all the time. But I think if we take personal responsibility as well as we can, you know, when I was able to get vaccinated, and I'm not only vaccinated, I'm double boosted. I mean, I've gotten everything I could possibly get to keep, the, you know, to fend this thing off. I think if we all, you know, are able to do that, that's great. And, and it's unfortunate that some folks who can't get vaccinated will not be able to attend because that, you know, again, You've got to think of the entire system, not just a couple of people. You know, you have to consider the whole as opposed to the one. Star Trek reference? Anyway. But, um, yeah, so I I just think if we're all careful, you know, it should be fine. Um, You know, 
as long as you can prove you've been vaccinated. I don't know how many boosts are required. Again, I had both of them because I'm immunocompromised and I can have the vaccine. So I made sure to take care of all of that because I would, I would be horrified if somebody got something that I exposed them to. That's just a personal responsibility thing. Don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, my my wife and I test often. You know, if there's a sniffle, mm-hmm. we get out the, the COVID test and things. You know, she works in healthcare, So throughout this whole thing, I mean, we've been really keeping our distance from people and wearing masks and, you know, doing everything that we can to keep ourselves safe and to keep other people safe. And, you know, so far, our efforts have been pretty good. Like, we've managed to avoid it. But, you know, we were in the U.K., uh, just we got back yeah. on Thursday night, and you know, I live in the Bay Area. People are pretty cautious in the Bay Area. They're pretty respectful of others. So when we go out, we often still see masks, especially indoors, et cetera, et cetera. But being in the UK, like all of that was pretty much gone. It was you yeah. know completely different, and you know that that was sort of difficult to see. You know, it was like wow, like the little apprehension. Um, in ourselves because, you know, we go to places and nobody's wearing masks and all that. Um, it still doesn't feel like not wearing masks is normal. Right, right, because we've been doing it for years. So was this trip uh, for pleasure or business or both? This trip was originally supposed to be in 2020 and it got pushed back several times and it was pretty much just pleasure. It was about going and seeing things that were important to us. We have friends in the UK, so it's really nice to be able to hang out with them every couple of years. And we took a bunch of people with us. Thorne Mooney and her husband came with us, and Gwian Raven and Phoenix Lafay came with us. So there were like six wow. people in our trip, pretty much all witches. Matt, uh, Thorne's husband, kind of not really completely one of us, but also one of us in so many ways. Uh, so it was really fun. Yeah. And, you know, we went to a lot of sacred sites, went to Ave Berry, some ancient burial sites from thousands and thousands of years ago, Glastonbury, you know, and then prowling yeah. around London and going to the great bookstores there like Atlantis and Treadwells. It was really fun and didn't have to teach any workshops or do any writing or anything like that. I just got to enjoy my time and uh, have a lo- as much English cider as I could possibly consume. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, sometimes it's nice to just go somewhere as a quote-unquote civilian where you're not on call to be the person that people know publicly. It, it's kind of nice to be able to go somewhere and just be another person in the crowd. That's just me, you know, no big deal, nothing to see. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, you know, it was really great. I got to meet Ronald Hutton for the first time. He's the author of the book Triumph of the Moon. I'm a big fan of Professor Hutton's work, so I'd never met him before, so being able to see him was like this really big deal for me. I don't have a lot of pagan idols anymore, I guess, but Ronald Hutton is still one of them. So seeing him was like this huge, awkward moment for me. Awkward? Was it not planned? Uh, It was awkward in the sense that I was so starstruck. I didn't know what to say, and... I didn't uh-huh. quite, I was worried that I might faint, and I did not, but I was still, you know, 
not on my A game when I talked to him. You know, I was like, oh, my God, you've had such a big effect on me and my work, and I think you're the best, you know, like very, like, fanboy kind of thing. Yeah, but don't you love it when someone comes up to you and says that? It depends on how they say it, and sometimes it can be overwhelming. That's for sure, yeah. right? Uh, but it it is it's always gratifying, though. That's for sure. I mean, hearing that your work has made a positive impact on somebody or that they've gotten something out of it really makes writing worthwhile. I think as authors, yeah. we often gravitate towards the bad reviews and like, you know, what did I do wrong? Why is this person's reading comprehension so poor? That sort of thing. <laughs> uh, so, oh, the horny god book. I, I, I mean, I just, I, I don't want to inflict violence on anyone. Okay, I, I have to be really right. careful here. But there, there are some people right. who have written reviews on places like Amazon, and they're just so not unrepresentative of the work, um, and it, right. it's really painful to see. You know, like that one star review. You know, somebody did not read the book, really, right? And so they're leaving this review. And maybe somebody doesn't read the review, but they see, like, the stars. And it might affect, like, their desire to buy the book or something. Um, I I could talk at length about (laughs) the sometimes, like, really misguided reviews of the Horn God book uh, over the last year or so. Sorry. I just well, saw one the other day, you know, so it's fresh in my mind. Oh, did you? Oh, honey, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's, it's a great. You, you know what it's like being yeah. a public witch, right? You have to you have to put sure. on some armor. You have to have some shields up. You know, it's not all yeah. easy. It's not all nice. You have to have a thick skin, and I realize that. But sure. it's still it still hurts though, like when somebody picks apart your work uh, for reasons that you don't think are valid. Right, you know, one of the biggest yeah. criticisms of the Horn God book is that it's it's woke because I talk about like horn goddesses for a few pages, and you know, oh my God, like if it doesn't have a penis, you know, there's a bunch of people like going crazy and thinking that I have, you know, absolutely like sort of defiled the horn god or something. It's just so silly. I understand what you're saying, and you know very well that if you had not spoken of any uh, female horned goddesses, you would have you would have received much along the same lines, if not more criticism. You know that, possibly, possibly, but but for me, like the book is about where the research took me. Right? I didn't write it with the political agenda. It's just that. There were female tans in the ancient world. Oh, who knew, right? And, you know, for somebody to get upset about that is weird. And there were female deities with antlers found in areas where artifacts of Kronos have been found. I think that you have to write about those things because they were there, and that's the honest thing to do. Um, But for people to sort of accuse me of writing with an agenda is, like, you know – it's hurtful. My agenda is only to tell the truth, and yeah, that's it. You know, especially with a kind of a more of a history book like that one. Exactly. But here's the thing: most people, there's listen. There's lots of reason to find offense in American history, 
there's lots of reason to find offense in the way my tradition was imparted to me at the beginning because it was very male-female and all of that. But, you know, when you know better, you do better. And this whole idea of this person's woke, this person's not, please, with the fucking every five seconds, a new label on something so people can rip it apart, even if it's a good thing. Because I'm sorry, the idea that you can change and grow and accept new modes of thinking isn't woke or not woke. It's fucking human, and we're all supposed to be able to do it. I don't think um, the need to slam people for wanting to accept the new things that come to us through new experiences and new people and, you know, new ways of being is a beautiful thing, and it doesn't require a label. It's not woke or not woke. We used to call it just being human and being able to grow and change. So I, I really hate these fucking labels about being woke or being, or being that, you know. It's crazy. Yeah, I, I, I find it sort of frustrating sometimes, especially like, especially the woke label. You know, most of the time people are called woke for just accepting others, right? I mean, that's the bare minimum that we can do in society. There's a place for everybody in the craft, everybody in the craft, no matter how they identify. And uh, people who want to push others out, uh, it just, it sickens me and disappoints me. We should be so much better than that. We should. You know, back in the day, we all said we wanted it to be back when we were still not saying the word rich out loud, um, where it was, you know, you don't talk to people about this. You keep it close to the vest. It's nobody's business what you're practicing. All we wanted was the fact that we might be able to one day out loud say we were witches and not have people try to stone us or shoot us. I mean, and this also is in my lifetime, okay? So you can only imagine the idea that, you would hold on to something and gatekeep it in such a way as to slam everything that comes after you, which is what this this smacks of to me. It's a very um, shadowy way to, like, say, oh, well, you know, the way you think about people isn't cool. Um, It's supposed to be this way, the way we thought about it 50 years ago. So, yeah, I I have a hard time with the labels. I have a hard time with the bullshit, the gatekeeping, all that crap. Um, If any, you know, any practice that doesn't change and grow is destined to die, period. Everything living has to change and grow. Am I right? You are absolutely right. The craft is not a practice that's preserved in amber where it has to be done exactly the same way as it was done 50 or 70 years ago, right? I mean, the more we practice, the bigger the bigger our circle should be. The, the more space we should have for everybody, not less space, not trying to kick people out. Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is frustrating. I think social media makes people think that they can say anything and it doesn't have any consequences. But when you push somebody out of the craft, I think you diminish the craft. The more voices that we have in our community, the stronger our community is going to be. 
I agree. And I think finally, because of books like yours and, you know, and Thorne, of course, Thorne Mooney, another one of my favorite writers, um, you know, I'm getting a lot less of the negative, oh, you're a gardenarian, like it's leprosy. You know what I mean? There was this large period of time where if you said gardenarian, Wiccan, people kind of like gave you the side eye like you were a Republican. Do you know what I mean? Did that ever happen to you? Because I got that a couple of times. You know, not for specifically being a gardenarian, but, you know, Wicca bashing is currently a a thing, right? And I get it to some degree. Wicca has always sort of been the biggest of the witchcraft pagan denominations. And sometimes that notoriety might diminish another tradition. Uh, so I, I understand it, but, you know, when people are like, Wicca is not witchcraft and stuff, I mean, that's unnecessary. Wicca is not the only witchcraft. It's just a type of witchcraft. And there can be many different exactly. witchcrafts, and we can all practice together. And a lot of these impulses all stem from the same thing. I guess one of the things that I think is really funny, though, with sort of the, the critiques of Wicca, and you read books, you know, where, like, they're very adamant, I'm not a Wiccan. And what they are writing about in their books is basically Wicca. If you cast a circle, call quarters, invoke deity, do a seasonal working in the middle, cakes and ale, I mean, that's, that's essentially like the Wiccan formula for ritual. Uh, so yep. to badmouth Wicca while using that formula has never made sense to me. If you don't want to call it Wicca, that's completely fine. But there's no reason to denigrate those who like to call the practice Wicca. Yeah, I mean, I'm proudly Wiccan. I say that. And, you know, again, (laughs) I have in the past gotten the side eye or the negative comment like, oh, well, you know, you're stuck in the past. And it's like, no, I'm very much not stuck in the past. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it amazes me. You know, people just look for a reason to validate themselves through hurting others. And it's, it's not a pretty thing, and I don't find it to be kind. You know, you mentioned earlier about how a review can, you know, a bad review can really hurt you. And when, when I first started broadcasting, you know, now over a decade ago, I made the mistake one time of reading a really bad review. And... <laughs> Oh, I mean, not this good. Person, this person, oh, honey, this person dismantled me from one end to the other. It was like, she's too fucking loud and nasty and blah, 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 and she's so opinionated, and who does she think she is? I mean, literally, and I've not done, I only do one live show a year with a camera on, and that's Mystic South, which is where I'm hoping to see you very, very soon. Um, but yeah, so this woman just really ripped me apart, you know, and it was so bad. It upset me so much. It affected me for like the first month. And I'm like, this is not good. And then somebody said, oh, look, you've got this really great review. So I read one more review to cancel out the, the bad one. And I said, this is it. I'm never going to read another review ever again, because if you believe the bad ones and the good ones, you can't not believe one and believe the other. So it's all good. It's all bad. You're going to have a mix no matter what. 
keep doing what you're doing and ignore it. Just ignore the reviews. Keep doing what you're doing because there's always going to be an audience. Jason, people are always going to buy your book. Always, always, always. Period. Because they're good. They really are. I think that I think sometimes, though, like the, the bad reviews and whatever say more about the person doing the review than the actual book. And I, I will admit that some of my bad reviews I wear as badges of honor because it's obvious that the person writing the review is a fucking idiot and, like, a terrible person. <laughs> so that the fact that they hated my book is completely fine because I don't want them to really read my stuff, if, you know, if they're not going to be accepting of others. Sure. I just, you know, I find, again, I find the whole accusation quote, I mean, it's just being human. It's just being a person who says, all are welcome, and all are supposed to be welcome. And quite frankly, anybody who doesn't think all should be welcome are entitled to their opinion, but not near us. You know what I'm saying? Like, anyone can believe what they want to believe. Whatever prejudices a person harbors in their heart it's their business, but we don't need you out in public doing that. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, you can't you can't change every heart and mind, right? And no matter right. what we do, no matter how much work we put out there, there will always be people who are on the wrong side of certain issues, who limit what we do instead of expand what we do. Um you know, right. but again, that says more about them than it does about us. And yeah, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is because it'd be nice if we could kind of kick them out, but that's not possible. But what we can do instead is yeah, we can be positive, right? Like we can have a bigger platform. Like we can make sure that everyone knows that they're welcome in the craft and they're welcome in what we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's a good thing. And I think the folks who want to live in that kind of uh, gatekeeping negativity, I mean, again, it's their business to do what they want to do with their own groups of folks and their friends and their coven mates and all of that. I'm very respectful of whatever other people want to do because I'm a huge believer in freedom of speech, even if the speech is shitty, because we have to be able to know that we're going to be able to say what we want to say out loud, too. So, you know, it's a really fine line um, when people come after you for something that's really about them. Um, But again, all speech, in my opinion, should be protected to a certain extent unless it's intended to cause harm, physical harm. Like, I'm not I don't believe in the fact that you should be able to say, um, go, you know, go hurt this group of people like a previous president did, you know, uh, basically suggesting that people should go take out this person or that person or this group or that group. No, 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 no. Hate speech like that should not be protected. Opinions should be protected. But opinions are not necessarily Uh, something a person's going to live and die by. Now, speaking of opinions, I just wanted to go back very quickly in the last couple of minutes and talk about, we had talked about Roe v. Wade briefly, but if that is overturned, 
um, of course we know that other groups are going to be targeted next. And I was wondering if you thought we were on that hit list. I'm not sure that we specifically are on that hit list, but given the current makeup of the Supreme Court, it would not surprise me if there were decisions which elevated Christianity in the public sphere um, more so. I mean, I don't really think that living in California or even living in most urban areas, uh, that someone's really in danger of their personal liberty being completely trampled on. But I do think that there's a real possibility that we might see like a push, like to have our tax money go to Christian schools, right? And that should not happen. Uh, A push to see more overt displays of Christianity on the public square while negating other faiths and traditions. Does that make sense? I, I, I do fear that. I also really fear for my LGBTQ friends because uh-huh. I think that's the like, this Supreme Court is going to go. Anyway, Jason, you're wobbling again. Yeah. Anyone who thinks that the LGBTQ yeah. might still wobbly. A little bit. A little bit. Wobble. I'm hearing you a bit better now. Yeah, but you're you're, yeah. you're better. Any, we're talking about LGBTQ, and I am yeah, yeah. Please say what you're saying. Say what you're saying. Anyone who doesn't think that the LGBTQ community is a huge part of the greater pagan and magical community is completely wrong. I mean, they are a huge part of everything that we do. Their voices are essential to what we do, and I'm really really worried about what the Supreme Court's going to do. In that regard, I could see this current iteration of the Supreme Court, maybe not overturning gay marriage, but allowing it to be a matter of the state. So in certain states, you are a full citizen, and then in other states, you are less than a full citizen. And uh, that's really, really scary. And, yeah, um, we're we're in a bad place uh, with this current iteration of the Supreme Court. I think Roe v. Wade is really just the beginning I've never, most of us have never lived in a time where rights have been curtailed, rights that we've been given have been taken back, and that's what we're seeing right now. I I agree with you, and it is so frightening. It really is, and I don't know what to do about it, but before I let you go, because we're we're close to out of time, but I wanted to ask your opinion. What do you think of these online uh, groups trying to do um, ritual or spell casting against these things um, in, a, in a very large manner, like public ritual, only doing it online. I just wanted your opinion on that. I think the more energy we throw at these problems, the better. Uh, so mm-hmm. I'm all for it. I, I, you know, hex Donald Trump, hex the five terrible members of the current Supreme Court, I am, I am down with all of it. Uh, I, you know, I, we are fighting. I don't want to say that we're fighting a war because I don't want to minimize the physical harm that soldiers put themselves in. However, we are fighting a battle for the heart and mind of our country. Are we going to be a place that embraces everyone? Or are we going to be a place that only embraces a few white people who happen to believe a certain way? 
I am of the opinion that I want to be a part of the country that embraces everyone. Uh, so do the work, uh, do the magical work, but also do the work in your community. You know, the, the minimum is voting. The extra is organizing, giving money, uh, you know, going to protests, doing whatever you can to raise awareness of these issues and these rights that I think are really in jeopardy. I agree. Wow. Uh, Jason, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out. I know you probably have 9,000 things to attend to since you got back into town. But again, the book is The Witch's Book of Spellcraft, A Practical Guide to Connecting with the Magic of Candles, Crystals, Plants, and Herbs. It is a beautiful book. It really is. For someone new to the craft or someone like me who's old to the craft, can't recommend it enough. It's fantastic. Jason Mankey, I adore you. Can't wait to see you. And thank you again for spending some time with me. Tell folks where they can catch up with you. I'm available. Like, I'm available. I'm available on all social media. You know, I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok, yeah. which surprises me, Instagram, usually at Pan Mankey. If you just Google Jason Mankey, you can find out pretty much everything about me. Um, it's really revealing. <laughs> There's no privacy anymore. Uh, yeah. And, Raina, it is always a pleasure to talk to you. You're, you're one of my favorites. I can't wait to see you in July. Uh, it's going to be so good. Thank so you. give you a giant yep. awkward hug, and you're going to be like, please, Jason, let me go. And I'm going to be like, no, I'm going to hold you just an extra second or two. Um, hopefully, I would love it. Sense. I would love it. Yeah. Fantastic. No, I I am dying to hug you and give you a big fat kiss on the cheek. I miss you horribly. And again, thank you again for this beautiful book for a fantastic hour. And I'm going to see you very soon. And much love to Ari and um, to Matt and Amanda. Uh, also, thank you to them for being part of this amazing book. And, again, all our love to Ari, and I will see you very soon. Thank you. It's been really fun. All right. Take care.